Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. My name is Ursula Hackett, and today I am delighted to welcome Dara Strolovich, the author of When Bad Things Happen to Privileged People, Race, Gender, and What Makes a Crisis in America, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. Welcome to the show, Dara. Thank you so much, Ursula, and such an honor and a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about my book. So this book is a fascinating deep dive into the politics of crisis, the language we use to describe crises and the consequences of crises for groups who are marginalized by racial, gendered and class inequalities. Um, And using these examples of crisis from mortgage lending, foreclosures, pandemic, the uprisings for racial justice, Dara shows how dominant political actors have appropriated the term crisis from advocates for marginalized groups as justifications for retrenchment and privatization and policing and punishment. So um, I'd like to hear first about how this project came about, Dara. So can you tell me the origin story for when bad things happen to privileged people? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Wonderful introduction. Um, So it's kind of a convoluted route, as I think these things sometimes are. Um, So a lot of my my, my sort of first round of of research um, was really focused on interest groups and social movements and political representations, thinking political representation and thinking particularly about them um, as lenses through which to explore, understand um, the kinds of mechanisms that both enable and complicate trajectories of progress for marginalized groups and thinking about the consequences of those for public policy. And in my first book that grew out of my dissertation, um, I kind of took up these questions through a multi-method study that brought together uh, data from a survey of interest groups with evidence from face-to-face interviews. And I was thinking there about the extent to which and the ways in which organizations that claim to represent groups like women, people of color, low-income people advocate behalf on uh, advocate on behalf of their constituents, um, multiply marginalized, intersectionally marginalized constituents. And one of the key findings from that research was that even after controlling for a whole range of organizational and political contextual factors, these kinds of social and economic justice organizations were significantly more active on issues affecting their advantaged constituents than they are um, on issues affecting not only intersectionally disadvantaged, but also kind of broad majorities of their constituents. Um, and I collected the data for that project sort of in the early 2000s. So um, I, I did my dissertation research uh, while I was in D.C. on a fellowship, and then I moved to Minneapolis for my first position at the University of Minnesota. Um, And then literally three weeks after I moved, month after I moved, um, 9-11 happened, and I sort of had this crisis, a sort of crisis of my own, um, where I thought, okay, you know, I've collected all of these data um, and now the world has been upended. And what is that going to mean for anything I was thinking about before? Um, 
And so, you know, I, I pressed on with, <laughs> with that project, um, uh, wrote the book and in the, in the course of it started thinking about doing another project about the effects of crises on advocacy for marginalized groups. Um, and, and so I collected a new set of data and the, but the more I thought about those questions, the more I talked with people about those questions, the more I started to question the very notion of what a crisis was in part, um, I started to realize kind of, you know, maybe this was somewhat uh, self-serving, but I started to realize, well, yes, every sort of many things have changed, but when it comes to advocacy on behalf of marginalized groups and the politics of marginalization more generally, some things were exacerbated, certainly, um, but a lot of it was the same. A lot of it was the same kinds of ongoing and quotidian kinds of problems and forms of marginalization. Um, there was a sort of pivotal moment when I was describing the project to um, a, a friend who's a historian, and they said, well, why is 9-11 the crisis? Why is Hurricane Katrina the crisis? Why isn't the Bush presidency the crisis? Um, and it really started me thinking about this kind of idea or, or questioning the idea that that what matters in politics are these kind of interruptions um, and thinking more broadly. And that led me to a whole body of scholarship, mostly, frankly, outside political science um, in sociology and race and ethnic studies, gender studies, and what, let's now come to be called critical disaster studies. Um, that really sort of takes that idea in some ways as its as its starting point. Uh, the, the line, there's no such thing as a natural disaster, is one that kind of comes out of that. And I started to think about that um, in in the context of politics and the politics of marginalization. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think I published like one book chapter about the sort of effects of crisis on advocacy for marginalized groups, and then kind of. Um, ended up sort of going back to to um, to the beginning, or, or 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 sort of you know taking a new point of departure um, and thinking more critically about the ways in which crisis is itself a political outcome and not and and itself endogenous to politics. Um, and and I and then I guess the other sort of origin story has to do with that at the same time as I was thinking about these questions, the mortgage, the, the, sorry, the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, how, whatever we want to call it, um, up the early 2000s started, and I was living in Minneapolis, which was kind of a center of, um, or, or had really high rates of foreclosure, many of which were related to subprime mortgage lending. Um, I had also recently been in, bought my first was a condo not a house and um the realtor who was helping me had me apply for what i learned later was a subprime mortgage um and it was only because a friend of mine is a mortgage uh sort of in the mortgage industry who was like no you you do not want to do that they they sort of are aggressively peddling these things um, to women and people of color and that kind of got my mind focused on this question and started, you know, thinking about um, or looking into the origins of subprime, subprime lending and 
sort of turned out to be a pretty, um, you know, unhappily, but useful uh, case study for thinking about these sort of juxtapositioning um, the idea of crisis against these kind of, again, sort of longer duration um, problems. Mm -hmm. I fascinating to hear some of your own personal experiences that kind of meld into the conversations that you're having that led to this work, because of course we we use this term crisis in in such a profligate way, don't we? That we we, we use it all the time, and you know whether it's a, a an essay crisis, I remember from my own undergraduate studies, or whether it's existential crisis, whether it's a you know the, the climate crisis, of course, various different crises that you've described um, that, that we talk about. And I, I mean, in in amongst this sort of morass of language. Well, how do we define a crisis? I mean, what is a crisis according to in your in your work? Yeah, I mean, in my work, <laughs> I, I I define it and also sort of juxtapose it against what I call what I like describe as a non a non crisis. Um, and so, um, I I argue that that what a crisis is is not self evident. It's not just something terrible that happens that the state responds to, um, but rather something, I use the technical term, bad term, bad, bad thing, um, a bad thing that's framed as a critical juncture that is deemed worthy of and remediable through state intervention and resources. Um, so it's, you know, as I say in the book, it's not a term that we should understand as a transparent descriptor of an event or a phenomenon, but better understood as something that is made um, in and by political processes. And I argue that these same processes also constitute what I think of as crisis inverse, again, non-crisis, um, which is the concept I use to describe similar or analogous bad things that are not afforded this kind of treatment, um, but that are instead treated as natural and inevitable and immune to, and importantly, not warranting state intervention and resources. Um, so it's sort of hard for, hard for me to now think about and describe and understand um, that term without thinking about it in relation to, you know, this, this other term with which I pair it. So there's this interesting combination here then of, of, of severity and tractability or, or, or rather, you know, something's very bad, but you can do something about that. There's a sort of optimism to that, that idea about tractability. And I was kind of interested in that because we, because we, you know, these terms crisis are so ubiquitous. One might expect that very ubiquity to to provoke a kind of dull pessimism, you know, so, you know, we just can't, I mean, it's like the climate crisis, it's a degree of a sense that this is so severe, there's, you know, is it hopeless? I mean, that people are thinking in that very pessimistic way, but, but actually your definition of crisis has an optimism to it. Would you say that's right? Sort of. I think, I actually think the ways in which political actors, you know, of course, are dominant political actors and often movements of and for marginalized groups have kind of imbued it with an optimism that uh, against which I push back a little. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it's a double-edged optimism, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting way of thinking about the question. Um, because 
even as you know you you've described the sort of severity of a problem there's often some um argument i'm thinking here of the um basically the quote with which i open the book from from Rahm Emanuel um in the midst of that financial the, the financial crisis and scare quotes a little bit um of the early 2000s in which he says you never want a serious crisis to go to waste um and if i can you know things that we have postponed for too long that were long term are now immediate and must be dealt with he says the crisis provides an opportunity for us to do things that you could not do before and in his sort of framing of this right there is some some optimism this is a this is a turning point this is something we can do something about um and i think we see that in many ways in which political actors sort of use the term as itself an argument, if that makes sense, um, kind of brings with it, partly because of our sort of cultural understandings about what it means. Um, but, you know, you can sort of, it, it certainly goes back further, but some of the examples I, I use, at least in the sort of framing of the book, and I, but some of the examples I use, you know, include sort of Marxist framings of crisis as, you know, heightening contradictions that will then lead to, um, you know, the kind of revolutionary change for the working class. Um, you know, it's it's not only on the on the left, but it it manifests particularly on the left. Um, and I think, you know, or, and some other examples of that are, you know, Naomi Klein um, talking about the ways in which corporations and political actors exploit the shock of crises to privatize um, public goods, services, and rights for their own profit. Um, and so I think part of what, I, I guess, to kind of go back to your first question about the origin story of the, of the book was also kind of confronting those those tendencies both in sort of social science and also in kind of politics and, and sort of popular politics um that there is this optimism um and that there is or, or maybe optimism is the wrong word but kind of the ways in which crises are presented as or, or as providing opportunities, right, to to make changes, sometimes repressive and and um, uh, uh, regressive changes. Um, you know, the the Klein version of it is not an optimistic is a is a critical one. It's kind of thinking about the sort of Milton Friedman esque way of thinking about um, the way crisis produces change. And but sometimes in very optimistic ways, some of which, you know, have historical examples that are that are important and compelling. The ways in which, um, you know, the the Great Depression in the U.S. at least produces or, or, or lays the foundations or makes possible the conditions for the New Deal. Um, but even in thinking about that sort of archetypal example. You know the the New Deal produces its own subsequent, or or is is, is based in and reinforces in many ways um, racial and gender inequalities. And so, you know, bringing that lens to even those kinds of 
examples um, feels like it it sort of reinforces the calling into question of the of the um, generativity of crisis. Um, and then in some of the subsequent examples I trace in the book, I think makes clear that often, you know, that, that one of the, I want to say reasons, but maybe it is a reason. Um, this is true is that it's taken as given that at the end of the crisis, what you want to do is return things to normal. Um, and normal is full of oppression, marginalization, and inequality, right? So the indicators of what is normal are actually indicators of inequality and marginalization. Unemployment in um, Black communities during a non-recession is typically higher than among white workers in a recession. Um, that's a kind of easy one, but I think we see the same kinds of things with mortgage, uh, the, the mortgage foreclosures, um, you know, and a range of other range of other issues. Right. So I'd like to come to this question. There's, there's so much to unpack here. <laughs> and, and I'd like to come to this question. Maybe it's a very abstract question about this kind of generativity that you've been talking about. And um, the, the relation to, of, of kind of universality versus specificity. I mean, maybe this is really too kind of, you know, in the weeds. I don't know. But, 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 um, you know, in order to specify a problem and to describe its severity um, uh, 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 effectively, you kind of need to, you need to have that specificity, don't you? But um, to define a problem as a problem and then to make it tractable. But one might also think that if a, that a, a problem would need to be described in general terms in order for it to be understood as a crisis in the first place. So I'm kind of trying to um, feel my way through that. That those two sort of the, the twin demands, I suppose, of, of generalness and, and specificity, and perhaps that you could that might dovetail with some of the things you were saying about the that the ways in which this is used strategically as well. Yeah. So just to make sure I understand, sort of generalness in the sense that um, when we think of a crisis, I think the the kind of uh, general idea or the, the the sort of image in our heads is something that is affecting broad swaths of a population rather than some particular community um is that is that sort of what you're asking yeah and you know and i think i i try in the book at least to be careful to say that i'm not saying that when things affect broader populations or a whole country or whatever um that that doesn't demand certain kinds of extra resources or attention or justify resources and attention. Um, but I think, well, and, and this kind of is tacking it back to my, my first uh, book and, and intersectional work core generally, you know, I, I take seriously the, the argument and in some ways imperative that we cannot conduct politics and policy. Um, well, first of all, that we cannot, that, that it is, that it, that we will never dig ourselves out of inequality and marginalization 
if we conduct politics and policy so that only things that if, that are seen as universal, that affect broad majorities, um, are worthy of, again, state resources and intervention. Um, and that part of what happens through crisis politics is that the, the kinds of issues that we could intervene into um, when they are affecting groups are not just not broad, but they are they're not just particularized, they're not just treated as narrow, although all of those things are true. Um, they're also, as I sort of, you know, probably reiterated tried to say too many, too many times in the book, naturalized. They're they're treated as unremediable, right? Um, states of nature. And to kind of go back to a different sort of origin story, not the project, but of of the sort of what I argue is the kind of entrance of the the term into at least domestic politics in the US. Um, um the you know <laughs> the the term enters the English language through medicine, uh to, in which it was used to describe the kind of point of inter- point of a disease where either like treatment would make it treatment would make it better or not treatment would would lead to further decline. Um, and when dominant political actors start using it in American politics, it's they use it really rarely. They use it mainly to treat the cut or to, to, to describe the kinds of what I call clear-cut crises. Um, I did a, a, present a typology, not just of crisis and non-crisis, but of the sort of different ways in which um, political actors have used it over time. Um, and... The, you know, use it to sort of describe and sometimes to justify, to, to describe the problems and sometimes to justify intervention wars, uh, to, to deal with wars, to deal with conflicts in other countries, um, or to, to describe conflicts in other countries, to deal with recessions. Um, and at least in my, you know, my, my, my argument is, is that it enters um, the political lexicon as a way to think about domestic issues through um, uh, through the politics around uh, abolition of slavery and then next civil rights and the kind of here archetypal example is the NAACP's crisis magazine. Um, and there the, the, the sort of argument is clear. Um, they're trying to take something uh, racial first enslavement and then and then racial inequality um, and, and racialized violence um, and make the argument that this is not some normal state of nature um, that that racism and the racial violence um, are not just problems um, as uh, W.B. Du Bois writes in his initial uh, editorial to the first uh, issue of the, the Crisis magazine. It's not just the um, awful history of the contact of nations and groups, but rather something that the state can and and must address. Right? Uh, the magazine takes its name from the fact that the editors believe that this is a critical time in the history of advancement of men 
in scare quotes. Um, and essentially saying we cannot, so, so partly we cannot only think of this as a crisis if it affects the white majority, um, but also if we do not think of it as a crisis, we will never do anything about it. Um, so I guess maybe that's a long-winded way of saying that part of what I'm trying to argue is that it, you know, I mean, I also think, sorry, I'm now backtracking a little bit. I also think there's a lot of work in social psychology and political psychology and in some ways um, my own first book that shows that even the very notion of whether something affects a broad group or a narrow group is itself um, rarely that, that that rarely maps on or, or off, often does not map on to um, the, the the universality versus the particularity, right? Think about, I mean, this is a sort of some ways overly simple example, but you know, issues that are gender issues that affect mostly women, perhaps, um, you know, are often treated as exactly those kinds of particularistic narrow issues, even though, you know, again, sort of to put it tritely, women constitute a majority, not a minority of um, humanity, <laughs> um, humans. And, you know, not every issue is like that. I'm not saying everything is, you know, actually affecting 50.1% or whatever the, um, the percentage is. But that dynamic is one that I think plays out in how we have typically thought about, you know, broadly what is worthy of state intervention, who is worthy of it, you know, um, and then more narrowly in how political actors have deployed the idea of crisis politically. I'm very interested in to hear about how these uh, terms of crisis come to be used historically, um, but also to consider um, uh, how cri the term crisis and non-crisis uh, come to be used to describe these two different periods, one of which is the period during the 1990s up until the uh, sort of up until about 2006 of subprime mortgage lending uh, uh, that affects particularly people who are uh, 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 marginalized in various different ways. And also then the subsequent period, which affects, of course, not only those groups, but also a variety of other groups that has comes to be called a crisis. And you've got this extraordinary empirical work that, uh, that sort of anchors that discussion. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what your empirical findings were with respect to those two, the crisis and the non-crisis. Right. Okay. So thank you for the, for that. Um, so first, um, I think the, the, the first kind of indicator. So, so well, the first thing I want to say is the term non-crisis here and, and in general is one is not one that, that anyone else uses to describe the, the period of the 90s, but part of what I try to show and I hope do show is that in this kind of way I've de defined each one, that dominant political actors are, are manifesting, as it were, um, 
the idea of uh, that they certainly use the term crisis once we get to 2007, 2008, um, but they are sort of manifesting the politics of non-crisis um, around um, and around the foreclosures in the earlier period um, and and that that earlier period is sort of, sort of a, an archetypal non-crisis period because um, the, or, the, the, the origins of subprime mortgages are in the undermining of uh, 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 what's the words I'm looking for in in the are in the origins of um, fair lending and fair housing legislation of the '60s and '70s, and then in the later '70s and '80s into the '90s, um, uh, a whole slew of legislation is passed that basically undermines all of those protections by uh, deregulating. Um, a bunch of different financial instruments in a bunch of different ways. And, and so part of the non, the evidence to me of non-crisis is that the, the problems of housing discrimination and lending discrimination are actually turned from one that the state sort of says it's trying to address. And then they say, no, actually the way to address those things is to deregulate things to get the state out of the way to let financial lenders in who then make all these grand claims about the idea that this is the way we are going to expand homeownership among women and people of color um, when that the sort of evidence suggests that everybody knows from the outset that these are not going to enable homeownership. They are going to enable lots and lots of expensive loans that people will not be able to afford and now without the protections of fair lending and fair housing laws that have been undermined. So some of how I sort of show empirically this idea of crisis and non-crisis in, in each of these periods is that during this early peri earlier period, as um, subprime mortgages are pro proliferating among uh, sole borrower women and people of color, and um, sole borrower women of color in particular, fair lending advocates, racial justice advocates to some degree, um, uh, gender equality advocates are trying at state and local and to some degree federal levels to bring this to the attention and sort of get it addressed by um, particularly uh, Congress. And time and time again during that period, um, they're basically told, fair lending advocates are saying, there is a crisis of, um, of foreclosures in these communities and members of Congress and witnesses from the Mortgage Bankers Association, et cetera, are saying, there's no crisis. This is just what happens. These are, people are getting foreclosed on for all the same reasons they've always been foreclosed on. Um, and you can see this also in the 
So I, I look at various sources of, of data for this, and I'm looking and, and particularly at, at the ways in which what I characterize as um, uh, dominant media, uh, economic econ economic reporting in, in dominant media, but also um, what, I've just, what I came to call the, the transcript of dominant politics. So looking at uh, congressional hearings and party platforms and um, bills and um, uh, presidential addresses. And it, before, it, in the years basically um, following uh, a passage, so I, I sort of periodize it um, starting I go back as far as as 1980 with the data, but but a kind of important moment is um, the passage of the 1994 Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act that was sort of trying to address predatory mortgages, but but did not do so very effectively. Um, and so basically, I sort of periodize it sort of pre 2007, and then the period of 2007. 2008. Um, and in that previous period, in that earlier period that encompasses a far longer, um, a, a far a longer period, um, there was basically no alarm over, um, over the rising rates of foreclosure in, um, in the affected communities. Um, so for example, if it, in searching for the term use of the terms mortgage crisis, subprime crisis, foreclosure crisis, um, between 1980 and 2006, um, the Wall Street Journal published only one article containing any of these terms. The New York Times published only four. Um, in contrast, in 2007, there were 185 articles using these terms in the New York Times, 236 in the Wall Street Journal. These numbers would double again in 2008. Um, we see a very similar pattern if we look at congressional hearings. Um, so again, between 1980 and 2006, those terms appeared only 11 times in the transcripts of only eight congressional hearings. Um, of those instances, all but two were in the testimony of advocates for marginalized groups. Um, and again, to kind of go back to um, uh, the example I started with earlier, um, the counsel for the National Consumer Law Center um, testified repeatedly during these, these hearings about what she called a mortgage crisis for low-income homeowners. And she, this, the advocate for, for low-income homeowners, attributed this directly to, these are her words, the deregulation that removed or eviscerated many of the historic protections from unfair lending practices. Um, but by contrast, when dominant political and economic actors were using that term during this period, it was really often to assert that there was no such crisis um, in progress, that no such crisis was imminent. Um, so a mortgage bankers association researcher testified in 2006 that you know, although in these certain words, some argue that default and foreclosure rates are at crisis levels, his group's data showed that they're still, in his words, caused by the same things that have historically caused mortgage delinquencies, life events like job loss, illness, divorce, or some other expected, unexpected challenge. 
Um, and so again, he's not using the term non-crisis, um, but my argument is that he is characterizing these increasing rates of foreclosure as a non-crisis, um, that they're unfortunate, uh, that there may be they may be tragic, but they're natural and inevitable results, unalarming conditions affecting populations we might predict would face foreclosure. Um, I find it's absolutely fascinating because the, the, these these different characteristics that you're describing here, the way in which these kind of dominant mainstream reporters and, and actors are, are kind of characterizing the non-crisis, I think it's a, it's a concept that really needs to... Um, this is a big concept, and it's it's one that's composed of these different these different characteristics. It's that it's natural, that it's inevitable, that it's immune to, and also not warranting governmental intervention. I thought that was kind of interesting to to think about those the con that con particular concatenation because you've got these different characteristics. You know, it, it would always happen because it's natural, it's normal, it's inevitable. Even if we tried something, it wouldn't work because it's kind of immune. And anyway, we shouldn't bother because it's not warranting. <laughs> um, so you've got these kind of different onion layers of justification there that, that stack on top of one another to kind of constitute this this idea of a non-crisis. And I'm just wondering, I mean, maybe this is beyond the scope of this conversation, but I'd just be interested to know how, whether you understand these layers to reinforce one another or whether there are ways in which those layers come apart or in any of the, the work that you were doing, you, you saw that kind of those different layers on, dis on display in different ways. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I'm not sure if this answer is going to get to it. So, so, you know, press me, press me if it does not. But um, one of the other, I think, important dynamics in the particular, in the cases in particular, um, uh, is the, the cases in the second half of the book is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not only, and I think this kind of goes back to some of your earlier questions, um, or, or provides some extra layers to some of the, to answers to your earlier questions. It's not just in this case that we don't see the terms or the kind of, I don't know what to just had exactly the, the sort of esprit around um, around the idea that the that foreclosures have reached crisis levels when they're mostly affecting um, Solboro women and people of color and women of Solboro women of color and black women in particular. Um, but even once the crisis is sort of declared generally, even once um, uh, Congress and in some ways the financial industry actors, you know, and certainly dominant media start to think differently about what the state can and should do to try to stem the crisis try to in some ways keep people in their homes, um, but also concern about the broader financial meltdown. Then we have what I sort of in the book label a non-crisis within the crisis. The language and framing around the ways in which this matters for Solboro women and people of color stays the same. Um, so in the pre-2006 period, another sort of uh, manifestation of this non-crisis versus crisis is the language around 
who gets subprime mortgages and what kinds of borrowers um, these are, what, especially their credit term, you know, the, the sort of pervasiveness of terms like weak credit, poor credit, dicey credit, tarnished credit, rocky credit, damaged credit, it goes on, um, is pervasive. Um, and then when subprime mortgage foreclosures spread to the broader population, um, we start to get much less of that language at a kind of um, general level. Uh, so there's this steep decline um, in these characterizations of people with bad credit or the credit itself is as easy credit, um, you know, as we see both economic reporters and political actors trying to reckon with the fact that it might not be just borrower behavior that's the primary problem here, um, but starting to think about factors like, you know, the resetting of adjustable rate mortgages, um, previous federal action and inaction. Um, and so, you know, there was a sort of early Wall Street Journal article with a very revealing title, Subprime Debacle Traps Even Very Creditworthy. Um, and the reporter writes, one common assumption about subprime mortgages is that they are, their words, for borrowers with sketchy credit who couldn't have bought a home without paying punitively high interest rates. And it says, fair lending advocates have long alleged that minority and poor borrowers, their words, were steered into subprime loans. But it turns out that even a significant number of borrowers with top-notch credit signed up for expensive subprime loans. Um, you know, so basically ignoring evidence that for many of those um, groups, and, and, sorry, an important piece of uh, an important piece of information that I haven't uh, mentioned yet is that these claims that people had bad credit were actually empirically relatively unfounded. There was a there were a series of studies um, in the '90s and into the early 2000s showing that actually the the gap in um, between uh, white and black, male and female, especially single, uh, a sole borrower women and sole borrower men um, in who was getting, who was sold subprime loans and who was sold with conventional loans actually widens as incomes increase. Um, um, that actually sole borrower women were on average, had, had on average um, better credit qualifications than sole borrower women. Um, so all of these claims about these loans being important because people had bad credit were already untrue. Um, and then this kind of reinforcement of the idea that um, that was that that they had bad credit, but that these now basically white male uh, borrowers were credit worthy. Um, and they start blaming uh, um, again, banks and um, and the state. Um, but even in the midst of this kind of broader recognition, um, the indicators that signaled a crisis were treated as a non-crisis when they affected primarily women and people of color. Um, so 
even under this mounting pile of evidence that, for example, um, African Americans were more likely than that, sorry, high income African Americans were more likely than low income whites to be sold subprime mortgages, um, that women were more, not less, creditworthy than men. Um, first of all, this did not result in increased attention to the roles of discrimination and exclusion in the creation and proliferation of subprime lending. Um, but the framings of those populations and the presumptions they were unqualified for conventional loans persisted. So a 2007 New York Times article, for example, stated that, um, these are their words, poor minority homeowners used easy credit to buy houses that are turning out to be too expensive for them now that mortgage rates are going up and continued to credit subprime lending with opening, again, these are the words of the article, opening new doors to people with poor credit histories and with increasing rates of home ownership among, in their words, Blacks and Hispanics. Um, so again, I'm not sure if this gets exactly to what you're asking, but in terms of these, these layers, I think part of why I went to these examples is one of the layers is that just because something gets called a crisis um, for the broad population does not mean that it changes the ways in which people start thinking about the conditions that produced the non-crisis, the kinds of presumptions, the kinds of stereotypes, the kinds of discriminatory practices um, and exclusions that had, that in this case were at play in the, what I call again, not, not crisis. I think that was a a long-winded answer that didn't quite un unpack what you had asked for. But. No, no, absolutely did. And I, and I want to introduce our, our listeners also to another really meaty piece of theoretical apparatus that I, I really enjoyed reading about in your book, and that is to think about these different forms of crisis, because you've got this uh, sort of or orient your, your book around uh, five different categories, not just the categories of crisis and, and non-crisis, but also you've got you know a clear-cut crisis You've got, a, you've got a condition as crisis, you've got a calamity as crisis, you've got crisis as creation, and you have this category of uh, this sort of, uh, it's not by, by no means a residual category, but just this category of non-crisis as well. And, uh, and of course, in the course of our conversation so far, you've talked a lot about different empirical instances of each of these forms of crisis, although not necessarily in those terms, but I found it a very useful way of organizing our thinking um, about this, this area. And I, I one thing which I think you, you acknowledge in the book and which I think maybe we could explore here is, is just the, the extent of mutual exclusivity and collective exhaustiveness of these categories. Because you're saying in the, in, the, in the book that these are not understood to be mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive, but, um, but that they can help us to understand different aspects of a crisis. I'm, I'm wondering whether these, these different categories are, are different temporal freight phases of a, of a crisis one happens first the other one happens next you know maybe we sometimes do or do we see are they completely analytically separable um i'd just be interested to know how you understand these categories to fit together uh, in helping us to understand the crisis yeah well that's um thank you for that that question so um yes <laughs> uh yes and so I've, I've already uh, talked a little bit about the ways in which um, uh, crisis and non-crisis are not 
mutually exclusive in the sense that, you know, as I've just explained, even within what was broadly understood to be a crisis, um, in this case, the extent of um, housing foreclosures for marginalized groups was still treated as a as a non-crisis. And I think that kind of simultaneity um, is is often um, the case. In terms of the other categories, so I kind of come at them, and as you say, I you know I make clear that I'm not suggesting they're exhausted, and not uh, not just not mutually exclusive, but also not not exhaustive. Um, and they are largely ones that I I sort of think that they grow that they come from politics. So I'm even though you know there are some references in the book to um, existential crisis or um, you know more sort of individual level crises, just kind of as I sort of go through the the history of the the term, um, I am I am kind of these are the ones that I find political actors using and deploying or the ways they're sort of used to categorize the ways in which I see political actors, um, policymakers using the term. Um, and so I spoke earlier about this idea of clear cut crises. And these are the ones that are sort of, you know, the, the, there is a kind of temporal, a different sort of temporal, I guess it's more chronological than temporal um, uh, way in which, I think about that. Those are the sort of those that that is the way the term crisis comes into into politics to describe these seemingly self evident shocks um, that are sort of understood as as turning points, um, typically understood also to be triggered by quick or episodic or discrete and exogenous causes. Um, this idea of crisis, but a condition as crisis, is the one that I or, or is is the one that I started to describe earlier um, with reference to um, the ways in which abolitionists and then later uh, racial justice advocates use the term crisis to describe some kind of ongoing, typically domestic issue um, that again has been treated by dominant political actors as intractable, inevitable, natural. Um, and trying to reframe it as some kind of solvable problem again that's facing some kind of critical juncture um, that it that that justifies um, state intervention and then these last two terms calamity as crisis and crisis as creation are ones um, and I say a little early in the book and um, they kind of drop out a little bit more Calamity's crisis is the sort of term I decided to apply to what we might just think of as the pro proliferation of, of crisis language in politics um, that that uh, political actors sort of start using increasingly and sometimes in some ways interchangeably with other kinds of terms, tragedy, catastrophe, etc. Um, and that crisis's creation was my attempt to describe um, when political actors usually, not not only, but often um, social movement actors or, or um, marginalized groups try to create some kind of crisis to draw attention to a problem, to stimulate a policy response, often through disruption. Uh, uh, and in some ways, because of the focus of the book, mm -hmm. 
on dominant, the sort of transcript of dominant politics and on these two um, case match cases, I don't spend as much time on that as in some ways I, I kind of expected to or, or wanted or, or thought I thought I would. Um, but I think there's there's actually some some interesting potential there for, for some some future work. And that segues absolutely beautifully into my final question for you, which is, what's next? I mean, it, it is <laughs> you couldn't have, you couldn't have, you couldn't have set that up quicker, more uh, more handily than. Interesting, yes. <laughs> um, so, I'm not sure what's next for for um, my my thinking about or work work about crisis. I guess maybe maybe I'll kind of. Uh, uh, commandeer that that question a little bit to just say one thing and then kind of segue into into some uh, some last words about current work and and one is that um this so this book take took a long time to write uh, it it morphed it it uh evolved in many in many different ways um and i was um worked still working on it uh in in late 2019 and early 2020, when I was, it was, you know, sort of under contract and I was trying to start writing the conclusion. Um, and in the mid, so, you know, so I was sort of thinking about all kinds of different ways I would, I would do that. So I'm going to restart this answer slightly. Um, so, so, uh, so, so yes, so I'm going to, uh, com- commandeer that that question to talk a little bit about the end of the book, and then I'll and then I'll talk about some 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 ongoing work. So I was I, th- this book took a long time. Um, it took many sort of side side routes. Um, it evolved a lot while I was writing it, um, and that was true still in early spring 2020. Um, I was trying to write. The conclusion, and that's when we started hearing um, about, you know, this flu-like illness um, that was sort of mysterious. Um, and then, in the midst of the COVID nineteen lockdown, or that. Uh, COVID-19, COVID-19 um, um, in the U.S. in particular, uh, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor prompted widespread mobilization for racial justice. Um, and by June of that year, um, journalists and political observers were, ta- were referring to, you know, what they call double and even triple crises, of the pandemic, its economic effects, and the uprisings. Um, and I had a, a similar, uh, sort of maybe panics the wrong word, um, as that was happening as I did in some ways after when I was working on the first book in the midst of, um, 9-11 and, and Hurricane Katrina and the financial crisis. Um, in that case, in the, in the latter case, or, or it was, uh, in, in the former case in the, in the early 2000s. My panic was the world has changed, and all of these data I've collected, um, you know, will no longer be meaningful. 
in this case, it really started to sort of initially make me call into question the very idea that crisis was anything but real. Um, but the more I thought about it, and I at least try to argue in the last chapter of the book, that actually the lenses of crisis and non-crisis are, are generative or helpful or are useful um, for understanding the kinds of inequalities and forms of marginalization that were, at least as I argue, sort of both thrown into relief and exacerbated um, by those events. Um, and so one place that I um, sort of end the book is by, uh, I've, I highlight a quote from uh, Anthony Fauci from a press conference in April 2020, um, at which he was asked about the health and economic disparities that were translating into disproportionate rates of infection and death among Black people. Um, and he says, we've known literally forever that diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma are disproportionately afflicting the minority populations, particularly African-Americans. And he says, unfortunately, when you look at the predisposing conditions that lead to a bad outcome with the coronavirus, they're just those very comorbidities that are unfortunately disproportionately prevalent in the African-American population. And then he says, so we're very concerned about it. It's very sad. There's nothing we can do about it right now, except to give them the best possible care to avoid those complications. And I'm not trying to kind of vilify Fauci here. He's clearly troubled by the racialized health and economic disparities he's describing, um, but his characterization of them as something we've known literally forever, alongside his assertion that while the situation might be very sad, that there's, again, these are his words, there's nothing we can do about it right now, really framed them as outside the crisis and beyond the power of the federal government to remedy. Um, but I think it was also important and significant, and I um, this is where I sort of end, end the book, um, that other political actors were actually offering very other or, or different kinds of analyses. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, framed the conditions that fueled and were fueled by COVID-19 as part of and integral to how the crisis of the pandemic should be understood and addressed. So she says, um, the crisis is not creating new problems, um, it's pouring gasoline on existing ones. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw had a an op-ed or, or a column um, in May of, of 2020, um, describing, uh, sort of in, again, in the context of, um, of COVID-19 blackness as a preexisting condition. Um, she writes on paper, COVID-19 may fit the profile of an equal opportunity assassin, but the trajectory of its rampage to the United States strong, strongly indicates otherwise. And the reason I sort of lead us there to sort of talk about what is what is coming next is I'm not um, I'm less focused now, or some current work is less focused um, on the the politics of crisis and non-crisis per se, um, but is kind of bringing the two projects together in one that kind of picks up on these kind of intersectional 
frameworks to um, think about how how the how uh, contemporary uh, advocacy and movement politics have and have not uh, intersectionalized, as it were, and thinking and and thinking about some of these same cases as ones that sort of allow us to explore explore those questions. Dara, thank you so much. Um, I, I found this book so thought-provoking and so helpful in enabling us to understand some of these in, sort of intertwined and continual crises, these times that we're living in. Um, thank you ever so much. The book, everybody, is When Bad Things Happen to Privileged People, Race, Gender, and What Makes a Crisis in America. Uh, thank you, Dara, very much for speaking with me today.